Well, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to come before each and every one of you here this morning. Um, the lesson, we'll get right to it, so I can get you out of here as quick as possible. Today's lesson is entitled, The Humanity of Our High Priest, subtitled, The Seven Final Statements of Jesus on the Cross. Now, when I began to uh, look into this lesson, which was assigned to me, I was excited about it. And, uh, and there was good reason to be excited. But as I dig deeper, I actually am up here with somewhat of a, a heavy heart, almost to a point of fear. I realize that I have to uh, look into the mind of Jesus, and I'm going to give commentary on things that he said. And I, I, I can only hope and pray, and I have put a lot of prayer into it, that I represent his words appropriately. And it is a scary thing. And it's a deep thing. And so I pray that you will uh, pray for me. And then if you have difference of opinion, just know that, this, that the direction that I go was not taken lightly, but was taken with a great deal, deal of feel, fear and humility. But to help me to understand what was taking place there on the cross, to help me understand what Jesus was saying with the few statements that he had left, I'm building, we'll say, my presupposition out of our opening verse, which is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verses, beginning in verse number 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity, but was in all points tempted as like as we are, yet without sin. What I'm now going to look at is going to be an explanation of what I just read. We will visit this verse again, but I'm going to leave it at that, and now we are going to proceed to the events that took place on the cross and the words that Jesus spoke within those events. So beginning, we will say, and it's, it wasn't easy to get everything, I did the very best that I could to get everything lined up in order of timeline. I actually have my Bible had little sticky notes in it because we're going to have to jump back and forth between the synoptic gospels because no one writer gave an entire description of what Jesus said. So we had a little bit from this person, a little bit from that person, and a little bit from this one. And it seemed like Luke had the greatest amount of detail. And I also was able to notice that the different personalities that were present in the writers as what they saw was important. Now Matthew and Mark, they were pretty brief. They got straight to the point and they got, got in it and got out. Luke, he had a, a lot more detail, at least in, we'll say, the areas of detail. But John, he seemed to notice things, and we'll also see here, that some of the interaction that John records was actually between him and Christ. And so it was more of, I think, a personal record for John than it was for the other three. Now, we've had several lessons leading, that have done really well leading up to what we're going to discuss today. But 
we are now, Christ has, is at Golgotha, the hill. He is being nailed to the cross. This is what the Bible records to be the uh, third hour of the day, which is nine o'clock thereabouts in the morning. It doesn't end until the third, or rather the ninth hour of the day, three o'clock in the afternoon. So his crucifixion, not even counting everything that Jamie mentioned earlier, the scourging and the trial, he's going to be on this cross for nine or six hours, if I got my math right. That's a long time. It's no small thing. And I, I want, and I think it's important that we weigh in on how much pain and suffering that Christ was going through so that when we see these words that we don't just minimize what he was saying. Christ was in a position where everything that he said better been important because he was not in a talking mood. He was, he was not in a place where he wanted to elaborate on things. And you will see that, that his words were short, they were to the point. But I think it's important for us that we recognize that what he said took a great deal of struggle to get these words out, and that we need to respect that. And I think it's also important, as I opened up with Hebrews, that we understand that although I can't fully explain how this works, the Christ that we're going to look at today is the man Christ. We're not going to see the Christ that raised Lazarus from the dead, gave sight to the blind, healed the leper. We're not going to see the Christ of miracles. Well, however that works, he suppressed it, set it aside, and he allowed only his humanity to be placed in this position. He did not lean upon his deity to ease the pain. Everything that we're going to see is like it was you and I. The first event that took place of notability after he was nailed to the cross. As people, as scripture records, walk by, shaking their heads, scripture says. He is ashamed. They look at him as if he's something vile. There were two thieves, two malefactors, two criminals that were hung, one on each side of him. And there was a conversation, if we turn to Luke, or rather, I've, I've, I've jumped ahead. Rather, on, as, as Christ hangs there on the cross, he utters his first statement, found in Luke chapter 23, and he says, 23, and verse, beginning of verse number 14. Rather, verse number 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I, I think this verse right here, this statement, is where I, I, I was really concerned about what direction I wanted to go. I think most commonly, and I think for the most part, most of the commentaries out there would say that Jesus is talking about salvation. I don't think that that's what we're seeing here. And I have 
I don't want to go into great detail for time's sake, but I think what we're looking at here is, is Christ understood that the, the Lamb's book of life has already been filled out and that his going to the cross and his death is ultimately going to bring the salvation. But rather what Jesus is speaking of here are more personal events that took place in his immediate timeline. He is speaking of the soldiers that scourged him. He's speaking of the soldiers that are driving the nails into his hands. He is concerned not necessarily for their eternity, although I'm sure there is that role, please don't misunderstand me, but even in all that pain, and I, I, can you even imagine what it feels like to be bound to a, a beam and then have a nail driven into you? I get a splinter, and I'm, sometimes I don't want to talk to people in my shop the rest of the day. It puts me out. The last thing I'm worried about is their feelings, their consequences. But Jesus is worried about, I believe, the earthly consequences that may take place for these soldiers nailing an innocent person to the cross. It's like, Father, forgive them. Release them of the, the earthly consequences of their action. And if we turn to Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, which we won't, but if, we if you were to turn there, we'll, we'll find that there's a statement in there that says, what is loosed on earth will also be loosed in heaven. Jesus understood what that principle meant. That meant that if, that if I forgive you here on earth... That God's going to forgive you, not, we're not talking about eternal forgiveness, but God's going to forgive you of the action that you've taken against me. God showed the absolute, rather Jesus showed the absolute form of love. If we turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse, beginning in verse number 27. We read, but I, this is the words of Jesus, but I say unto you, which hear, love your enemies, do to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. Then moving on to verse 33, 32, for if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do, do even the same. Christ was showing that love, that his enemies, those who were reviling him, those who were physically hurting him, he was showing love. He was praying for them. Father, that's a prayer. Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Shortly after that event, Christ has the conversation with the thieves, and I think most of us are very familiar with it. The record shows that, that while others were walking by and, and speaking evil of him and shaking their heads and who knows what else was happening, that the thief, at least one of them, was doing the same. And if we turn into our Bible, to Luke 23... We'll, we'll read this little record. Luke 23, beginning at verse number 39. And one of the malefactors, which was hanging, 
hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answered, rebuked him, saying, Dost thou, dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art the same condition, the same condemnation, as we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now I put a little emphasis on that. I was wrong to do that. Jesus is hanging on the cross in agony. He's early into this crucifixion. Very early, I believe. He doesn't have, we'll say, the full effect of his body beginning to shut down, going into shock where there might be just a slight amount of relief. He is still in the fullness of the pain, still fully conscious, still, still thinking about the, the holes in his body. And like I said, I get upset over a little splinter. But he had holes in his body. So he's there in this, 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 this full pain. And there, here he is being asked a question, and he thought that this would be a good time to express something. And what he says, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. There is some theological depth to what he said. We heard a little bit yesterday about what an Old Testament saint would happen. If the malefactor died on the cross as an Old Testament saint, we know that he would not be in paradise with Jesus that day, but that he would go to what is called Abraham's bosom. If you want to know more details about that, you can read about that in Luke 16 with Lazarus and the rich man. But Jesus told him that he's going to be in paradise. He's referencing heaven. That means that Jesus had to die before him. It had to be finished. And I can prove that that happened, and I have a reason why this is somewhat important. If we go to uh, um, Luke here and we read on, or rather, I've uh, lost my place here. But in, in Scripture it says that that the priest came before the soldiers and, and demanded, or rather to Pontius Pilate, and demanded that the body be removed because we are now moving into a Sabbath. And so Jesus was, so at that point they made a request. They requested that the soldiers on the cross, that were watching the cross, would break the legs of those who hung there so that they would perish shortly. And we have to understand, it's been slightly mentioned, but what happens when, when you're in this crucifixion is that you begin to lose strength in your legs. It's in a very awkward position. And plus, with Jesus' case, he actually had wounds on his feet. I mean, sometimes I come home with hurt feet after being on concrete all day, and I don't even want to stand on that. I can't imagine what it would be like to have a hole in it. Over time... It begins, you begin to come heavy. 
and you begin to pull on your arms. And that pulling pulls this muscle right here around your rib cage and your, your lungs. And it becomes very hard to breathe. Almost can't breathe. And as, it, as this happens, fluid begins to build up in your lungs because you're not properly ventilating what's coming in, the moisture of the air, and it begins to fill with, with fluid. And then your breaths become even more difficult. So there at the end, every breath is a struggle. You push yourself up in pain and agony. Your legs are tired, you have to pull on those wounds in your hands just to get a breath. This is the picture I, I, I must show, the pain that Jesus had. And so when they broke the legs of the mouth actors and Jesus, they no longer would have that ability to breathe and would die quickly. When they went to do this, they found that Jesus had already passed. The thieves have not. They were still alive and were going to have their legs broken. But Jesus has passed. So this thief that's going to breathe in the kingdom with, with Jesus was a New Testament Christian. And that he will not be in Abraham's bosom, for Abraham's bosom will be empty. We will be transported to the to heaven. Now there are some that would uh, say, if we real quick, might mention, says, well, this is a perfect example of being saved without baptism. I recognize that they didn't give a, a lineage of everything that this man had done in his life right here. And conveniently saying, well, he obviously wasn't baptized. But we also don't know that he wasn't baptized. And I think sometimes we miss just what was being said here. This, this Man, here's what he said again. It says, we indeed justly, we receive our due reward. He, he has an attitude that doesn't sound like an ignorant man that just came to this. this. This man already understood in the verse prior to that. It says, dost not thou fear God? I think just because he was a thief, I don't know his trial timeline. And just because you're saved doesn't necessarily mean you're going to live a perfect life. But that being said, I think that there's little to no reason to assume that baptism was not part of this man's life. But there's something that we can learn from the two thieves. The one thief recognized that his struggles on the cross were of his own fault. We need to learn to have that attitude. We're going to have struggles in this world. Some of them larger than others. But at the end of the day, we have contributed to this world zero righteousness. We have given this fallen world much sin. We have participated in making, I'm not just talking about being born into sin. That, that, that's there. But we, from that point of birth, we haven't been going around being perfect, adding to a better place. We have participated in every day that we live, making this place more fallen than it was the day before. 
We deserve our struggles in our life. Jesus didn't. But yet he was on that cross. Moving on in the story, we come, I believe, hours later, I believe, the darkness had fallen upon the land. And we turn to John chapter 19. Jesus says something so profound. It really truly tells us about the humanity of who Christ was. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, I'm in John chapter 19, verse 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple, this disciple is John, the disciple he loved, standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Woman, mother. It's not a disrespectful statement, ladies. It was a, a, a statement of honor. Woman, behold thy son. He's on this cross in utter pain. Utter pain. Yet he is concerned about someone else. And then he says to John, he says, Behold thy mother. Jesus wanted to make sure that his mother was taken care of. This we're not talking about eternity. That's already going to be a done deal in just a few minutes. He's worried about a woman, a mother, that she's going to have unnecessary difficulties the rest of her life because of the culture then. It was difficult for a lady to be on her own without a man in her life to take care of her. Jesus cares. The high priest knows what we have suffered. He cares about our little walk here on earth. Now I'm not saying in any way that, you, that we're, as Christians, going to get out of the pain and suffering of this fallen world. It is not going to happen. But Jesus, our Father in heaven, still cares, and he shows it, that he cares about the walk that you have here on earth. He cares about your feelings. He cares about your emotional well-being. What can we learn from this? Well, this is something that I have, I have found in my life with others, and maybe myself, many times, God, as he did Mary, will lay out a path for you and me to walk a more easy walk. He'll bring people into our lives that will offer a path that will be better than the path we're on. Not only better than the path we're on, but the path that we're whining about. I hate my life. Jesus cares about that. He doesn't want you to hate your life. And he recognizes that there are circumstances like Mary. She was going to be victim of circumstances of the culture. He recognizes that. So he will offer another alternative. But how many times do we reject the alternative saying, well, I want to do it my way. I mean, that I see the end goal looks good, but I don't like the path in between. I need you to make my life better, but my life not change. Let's not be that person. 
Like Mary, let us receive the disciples' help. That God, that Jesus assigned us to help us have a better walk in life. Then, shortly after this, Jesus utters the word, I thirst. We find this in John 19, 28. I'm amazed how many people want to spiritualize that statement. Brethren, I do not think this is a spiritualized word. It's no more spiritualized, although some have done it, than the statement, Jesus wept. We're talking about his humanity. This is an utterance of a physical need that he is feeling. Now, let's take this into full understanding. Now, I've been thirsty before, and I'm sure some of you have been thirsty before. In fact, if I was to recall, the one of the most thirsty moments in all my life would have been when I was a teenager hauling square bales of hay. Now, who here has hauled square bales of hay? All right, now I see some young hands out there. Let me make this clear. I'm not talking about 25 straw bales a year. I'm talking about 1,000 a week. So if you had your hand up, I'm not counting that. <laughs> for, two, for two summers straight, I hauled square bales. Some, you know, we had machines, a pop-up bale loader that at least get on the trailer. And there was others where you have to jump off the trailer, throw the bale on the trailer, jump up on the trailer, and stack it. But there's no room for your water jug up there. You have to keep that in the truck, or the cab of the truck, depending on your situation. By the time you get to the end of getting that trailer loaded, you're thirsty. I know I was. Now, in that moment of thirst, my only real concern is my thirst. Jesus is nailed to a cross and has been there for hours. How thirsty does a man have to get to where the holes in his hands are not as important as the thirst that he is enduring? This is a thirst beyond thirst. Jesus is showing us just how human he is. No miracle working happening now. This is just a man. And if you will turn in your Bibles to, to Hebrews chapter 2. I believe that I can confirm this point. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse number 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. That's saying he was made a man. For those of you that want to know where you place in the creation, we're less than the angels. Jesus was made a man for the suffering of death. The sole purpose of Christ being 100% man was so that he could suffer as a man, so that he could feel as you do, physically and emotionally. And he's feeling it. And his Thirst is so great that all the other pain that he's enduring seem less important. This truly brings out 
how human our high priest was. The fifth thing, we're now coming close to the end of this story. Jesus then utters in Matthew 27, verse 46, the record. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now you're lucky, I'm not a big fan of concordance or trying to act like that I know about other languages. So we're going to just talk about the English translation here. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's quoting out of Psalm chapter 22. Let's turn there real quick because I believe when we move past that opening statement in Psalm 22, we'll see a better understanding of what it was that Christ was saying. What Christ was saying there is perhaps one of the scariest statements that you and I need to truly understand. In Psalm 22, verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from me, or from helping me, and, far, and from the word of my roaring? In that moment, Christ was alone. God had removed himself completely from him. And Christ was carrying our sins. You ever felt guilty? That's what Christ was, times a number that I can't even imagine. And he felt that the Father in heaven had removed himself from, me, from him. If we read in Isaiah chapter 59, we'll see what was taking place. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. That's where, God, that's where Christ was. He knew God was not, the Father was not listening. He was not responding. He was all alone. But we just read from Isaiah, that happens to us when our sins and our iniquities put a separation between us and God. Christ had no sin. The separation that, God, that Christ felt was still our sins. And he was alone. And scripture says, In 2 Corinthians 5.21, that Jesus was made sin. He carried our sin. He was made responsible for our sins. Now, this is what I want you to understand. If you get nothing else out of this lesson, I need you to get this. We do not want to ever be in the situation where we utter those words on our deathbed. This is serious stuff that I'm talking about. God, on the deathbed of Jesus Christ, his only son, perfect, 
But because Jesus on his back was carrying your sins, my sins, the sins of all the saints of the Old Testament, God removed himself from his presence and left him alone. And that will happen to you and I if we are not in Christ. We will find ourselves alone and without hope. Then Jesus uttered, It is finished. Jesus is now feeling that his body is giving up. It is is coming very close. We are, in my opinion, moments, a breath or two away from the end. He says, it's finished. We've won. I've done it. Now, if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, Verse number 15, we see that this moment had been predicted for a very long time. has finally happened. And we read, it says, He's speaking to Satan, I will, Satan, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and Satan, thou shalt bruise his heel. To make a long little statements there, to bruise your heel means that you will, you will inflict an inconvenience, a wound that will not be very popular, but will have no lasting effects. But the seed of the woman, he will bruise thy head. That means that one day, someone out of the line of Adam, that we know through Mary, Our Savior Jesus Christ will crush your head. That's what happened. It is finished. Christ had just crushed the head of the serpent, where he no longer has power over death. And if we turn to Hebrews again, Hebrews chapter 2, Verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part in the same. God was made a man. That's who we're talking about on the cross. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. It is finished. Any power that Satan has in this world today, we give it to him. And I'll tell you the quickest way that you can give Satan power is to believe he doesn't exist. He's a real thing. You don't want to be in the situation we just spoke of earlier where you say, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Because the next step after that is eternity in damnation. Believe me, it's not a game. Jesus did not go to the cross because it was cute. 
Jesus didn't go to the cross because he didn't want you to have boo-boos in this world. And Jesus didn't go to the cross so that you could be inconvenienced for a few years in hell. Jesus went to the cross for something big. And I don't want to cheat him of his sacrifice because it was no small deal. It was big. And we need to keep it big. And we need to respect the size of his sacrifice. And quit playing it off like it's no big deal. It's big. And we need to be grateful for it. Finally, after all this suffering, I believe the next statement was a statement of joy. There's some that would say that this was... Jesus was worried about his upcoming judgment. I I personally am not buying that. I think that it was a relief. Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He's saying it's it's over. I'm alone. I'm pain. I'm done. But now I'm ready to be with you. And that's where, that's the statement, dear brothers and sisters, that I want each and every one of you to say, I don't want you to say, oh, my father, why hast thou abandoned me? I want you to say, into your hands I commend my soul. Because that comes with the hope and the knowledge of salvation. Now, Those are the seven statements that Christ gave. His last statements. Every single one of them was uttered in pain. And there's three things that we can, I think, that we can really learn from that situation. What Jesus did on the cross. First thing is, is Jesus teaches us obedience. We can go back to the Garden of Gethsemane and we'll find Jesus was not eager about the upcoming events. He even asked, you young people, Jesus asked to get out of it. And he was told no. And he obeyed. He obeyed. Now, for us, we should learn to be obedient. Now, I may be summarizing this down too small, but let's, in a nutshell, what God asks us to do is, one, act like a decent person. Don't steal from things that aren't yours. Don't hurt people. Don't mess with other people's wives. Don't kill people. Okay, that's, that's, that's in a nutshell. That's all he's asked is just be a, a, a decent person. And then he asks, he takes a few days out of the year that he asks that we place above our own. And then he says, hey, don't eat bacon. <laughs> That's it. But how many I've heard tell me I can't give up my bacon? Well, that's fine. But imagine if, if Jesus Christ's attitude towards obedience was I can't give up my bacon, let alone am I going to go and be crucified on the cross. God has not asked you to do that. He asked Jesus to do that, and he obeyed. 
And Jesus did all the other stuff too. Can we not do the law is the bare minimum. The bare minimum. The law is not super righteousness. It's fairly righteousness. If you were able to keep the law perfect, you're just barely a good person. Not super good. The bare minimum. The second thing we can learn. Now, just so we understand, Jesus earlier told his disciples that he had 12 legions of angels and all he had to do was ask his father and they'd be sent. I take Jesus at his, at his word. He, he had 12 legions of angels. Now, a Roman legion, if you look legion up in the dictionary, it's got all different types of numbers, but in the Roman time, a, a Roman legion, the goal was to maintain about 6,000 people. Some would die, some would retire, so it might fluctuate between 5,500 and 6,000. But assuming that Jesus was referencing the 6,000, that's 72,000 angels. I can read you a story in Kings of one angel that killed 186,000 Assyrians. Can you imagine what 12 or 72,000 of those angels could have done for Christ? He chose in obedience to walk the path that he walked. Amen. The second thing that we can learn from Christ is forgiveness. Christ was concerned about those who were hurting him, making sure that they were forgiven in this world. Now, I ask you, think of the worst thing anyone has ever done to you. I bet you it didn't compare to being nailed to a cross. You have bad things. I've had some bad things happen to me. Now I can tie to a person or two. It doesn't compare to what Jesus went through. Yet he demonstrated forgiveness. So the next time, or if you're struggling with something right now, you think to yourself, oh my God, but Nathan, this guy just won't go away. You, you won't believe what she did to me. You won't believe what that pastor said from the pulpit. Was it the same? I'm having bad luck with this today. Was it what Christ went through? Nothing. Com no comparison. We can forgive. And we will be the better for it. The third thing that we can learn from Christ, and I'm closing this down, is suffering. We are going to suffer in this world, not because it's God's will. Sometimes it may not even be our fault. But we're going to suffer because this world is broken. Things are going to happen in this world that we can't see coming, and all the prayers in the world may not stop it because it's just a fallen world. And we're recipients of that. But Christ also suffered. I hope that I brought out at least a little bit of what that looked like. At a point for perhaps hours, 
Christ literally struggled for every single breath. Imagine when you take a breath, and I hope you never take a breath the same way again now, but when you take a breath, imagine the, a pain that comes with that every single breath that would cause most of us to pass out. Yet that's what Christ endured for hours. Every breath. It wasn't even a full breath. It was just a short breath. (gasps) He suffered. And so we began this lesson from Hebrews chapter 4. So we're going to end this lesson with the same verses. So again, I read to you, seeing then, and I hope that these verses that we started with have a new meaning to you now. Seeing then, we have a great high priest that is passed into heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. What that means is that Jesus has been touched with our infirmities. And I'm willing to bet far worse infirmities than anyone in this room today. He's been touched with them. But was, in all points, every single struggle that you've ever had, every temptation, every bodily function that you want to blame and say, well, it's not my fault that's how I wired Jesus struggled with that too. In all points, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now let me add a verse. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ has not left us alone. His suffering on the cross as a high priest, our high priest is an avenue for us to boldly seek the throne and find the grace because as Mary, God wants to help you. God wants to be there for you. He may not take you out of your suffering, but I guarantee you he will help you through it. And he knows. I don't want, I hate when I hear, well, God doesn't understand what I'm going through. He's God. Wrong. God knows more about pain and suffering than we do. So when you go to him in prayer and say, Lord, I am really struggling with this situation, he can legitimately sympathize with your situation. May God bless and thank you for your time.